You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we're discussing whatever happened to the Sodder children. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am recording this episode on Labor Day, but by the time you hear this, Labor Day will be over. I hope you all had a lovely long weekend. Um, I'm seriously so sad because I feel like Labor Day marks like the official death of summer, Um, but not really where I live because it will continue to be ridiculously hot until like mid-October. Um, I remember when I found out that I was having my son and his due date, um, is September 10th. And I remember thinking, oh, it's going to be fall. That's my favorite season. Um, we're going to get him a ton of really cute fall outfits, yada, yada, like think like lumberjack. Um, and then he was born and it was like a hundred degrees. So much for newborn flannel shirts and baby boots. Today, we will be discussing a listener's suggestion from Danielle Voss. Danielle, thank you so much for reaching out to me with this case. If you want to know how you can send me a listener suggestion, then listen up. If you aren't already following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, well, you should be. There, you can comment on cases and share your thoughts, opinions, and theories. Sometimes I hop on there and do like a story or a live where we can chat a bit. Um, You can also send me a listener suggestion. I thrive off of these listener suggestions. Honestly, they help to fill up my calendar and then like you guys are doing the work (laughs) because sometimes it can be hard, like especially when I've been doing like so many cases. I'm like, oh, did I already do that one? I don't know. Like, cause I've done a lot. Um, but when you guys give me suggestions, you guys tell me things I, sometimes I haven't even heard of. And I'm so glad that you guys bring them to the table so that we can shed some light on them. Also, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll stay current on episodes. You'll never miss a single one. And you'll also stay current on any giveaways that we might be holding. And speaking of giveaways, Mariella, who won my birthday giveaway last week, got her package. I got a confirmation. So now I feel like it's okay to share with you what was in it. I just didn't want to ruin the surprise for her. I just feel like that's part of the fun. So, um, the giveaway was a favorite things package. So I put in a bunch of my favorite things, obviously. Um, and so I sent to Mariella, um, some face masks. I can't remember the brand of them right now at the moment. I'll figure it out and I'll let you know. Um, I got some Burt's Bees chapstick. It's going to get cold, guys, and you don't want to be chapped. Um, A couple of Twix bars, because Twix are my absolute favorite. Um, And I also got her a gift card to Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Sephora, because those are my three favorite places. I hope you enjoy your gift basket and that you use it to pamper yourself, Mariella. I so appreciate Mariella and all of my listeners. So please know that if you didn't win this giveaway, there are going to be many, many more to come. I love to spoil you guys because you guys just mean a lot to me. Also, we have a website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. One of these days, I'll actually get around to doing something with the site. Um, But for now, you can listen to all of my episodes there. Um, They're all in one place. And basically, it's like a binge site for the time being. 
I'll figure it out. Okay. Don't worry about it. Hang in there with me. Um, so in the book that I've currently been reading, Cold Cases, I've talked about it a little bit on here. Uh, there's a chapter on John Benet Ramsey, and I've already covered John Benet Ramsey's case in my 44th episode. So if you haven't listened to it, then definitely check it out. Um, anyway, I almost didn't want to read the chapter because I was positive that it was going to have something in there incredible that I wish that I would have included in my episode. Ugh, but I like put on my big girl pants and I decided to read it anyway, because if there's anything that I could share, like an update with you, then I would like, I'd be like, Hey, I read this chapter and it had something really interesting in it. And I don't want to share it with you, but you know what? After reading her chapter, I was pleasantly elated that everything that Cynthia Roth went over, I had already included in my podcast. So wahoo, pat on the back for me. Um, so that was actually one of my highlights of the week, which could have potentially been a low light, but it was a highlight. Anyway, enough chit chat. Let's get started with today's episode, shall we? I'm going to begin it with a quote. The quote is, your house is going up in smoke and your children will be destroyed. You will pay for the dirty remarks that you've been making about Mussolini. Are you intrigued? Then listen on. All right, so I just want to be up front and give you this little caveat right off the bat. Um, this is an old-timey case, and old-timey cases can sometimes be a little bit difficult because there's simply just not that much information about it. It's also in West Virginia, and it's difficult to keep track of um, newspaper articles, but this case actually does have a lot of information, and we'll talk about why in a little bit, um, but I think that you guys are going to be pleasantly surprised with how, like, accurate and how much information there was about this case. So um, we're going to go on a little time machine and we're going to travel to Fayetteville, West Virginia on December 24th, 1945. And you might be thinking to yourself, December 24th, that sounds fun. Christmas Eve, right? Uh, you know, if you're paying attention, the name of this podcast is Mystery Still Unsolved. And the mystery is not about whether Jack got the BB gun that he wanted for Christmas. Okay. This is a little bit darker and it's not going to be as fun. Um, we're going to start out by telling you that George and Jenny Sauter, um, with their nine children were fast asleep in their beds, possibly wondering what Santa had placed under the tree, especially for them. And I imagine as one of nine children, you would be very excited about Christmas because you, I mean, my husband is one of six and there's just a lot of kids and I feel like that's expensive for anyone. And so you get a lot of hand-me-downs when you're one of nine, I'm assuming. So Christmas is probably very, very exciting for you because you finally get a gift that is yours. Like this is yours. And other people try to play with it. They can't be like, well, that was mine first. You can be like, no, Santa brought this for me. Leave it alone. Um, but around 1 a.m., George and Jenny awoke to the smell of smoke and smoke coming in under their door. The parents and four of their children who were sleeping in the room just next door escaped. When George and Jenny ran outside, they had hoped with all of their might and all of their hearts that their other five children had ar already made their way out of the home. But after running around the house and calling their names several times, it proved fruitless. George was forced to realize the unthinkable. George and Jenny still had five of their children trapped in the second story bedrooms. 
Marion, the oldest solder child, ran to a nearby neighbor's house for help as other neighbors came out to see what was happening. Without missing a beat, George Sauter ran back into the fiery blaze, but upon reaching the bottom of the stairs, he knew that he would never be able to make it up them. The stairs were completely blanketed with flames. That was okay, though, because without skipping a beat, George ran back outside. He is literally like the quickest problem solver ever. Um, he ran straight to the location where he kept a ladder. This ladder was always there. It had been there for years, except for this night. The ladder was missing. What What the heck? Like, But George didn't have time to ponder or to get frustrated. His babies were still in the fiery home. So yet again, George pivoted. He ran to his two work trucks. He thought, hey, if I can drive this car underneath my kid's bedroom window, I could climb up on top of my truck and get inside to rescue them. Uh, George hopped in the truck and turned the keys ignition, but the truck stalled. He tried it again, stalled again. Are you serious? This could not be happening at a worse time. No fear though, because there was another truck. He raced to that work vehicle and attempted to turn this truck on, but guess what? Nothing. Nada. Zilch. Both of his trucks were not working at quite possibly the worst time that they could not be working. This is not just like a, hey, I can't deal with this. I'm already late for work. Like this is like a matter of life and death. Within 45 minutes, their family home had been completely engulfed in flames. George could do nothing other than console his wife, Jenny, and hope that they would be able to find his remaining children's remains so that they would be able to give them a proper burial. So these are the children that were missing. Maurice, who was 14 years old, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5. Now, at first glance, this case might seem pretty cut and dry. I mean, the reality of the situation is that house fires are terrible, but they do happen, and all too often, people's lives are lost in these tragedies. However, this particular case is anything but cut and dry. But don't let me give it away. Let me tell you some more things, and you can kind of sift through and see if you decide that this case is suspect or not. All right. For starters... The fire began sometime around 1 a.m., and even though the firehouse was less than two and a half miles away, it took the fire chief and the other firefighters seven hours to report to the scene, besides the fact that no other fires were reported in the area that night. Also, multiple, multiple neighbors had attempted to call with no answer at the firehouse. So one of the neighbors even was like, screw this crap, I'm just gonna drive down to the firehouse. And when he drove down to the firehouse, guess who was there? F.J. Morris, the fire chief. He went up to the fire chief in person and told him what was happening at the solder house and he didn't seem too phased or like there was like no urgency. And I feel like I go through this a lot, not to this degree, but like, relate to something and I'm like oh my gosh we're already late and my husband just like is just sitting there and I'm like what are you 
like, where's the urgency? Like, that's how, how I kind of felt when I was reading this part. I was like, uh, hello, there's a fire and there's five kids that are missing. Where's the urgency? Why are you not like hurrying up? Why are you not ringing the bell? Come on, stupid. Anyways, see, this is where you need to think about letting certain people in authority go. I mean, geez, isn't there like some sort of like firefighter oath that was just broken in this instance? Like, don't you promise to like serve and protect or something? You can't just fail to respond to a fire because it's inconvenient because it's Christmas Eve. People still die. There's still fires on Christmas Eve, idiots. Also, when the firefighters finally decided to show up seven hours later, the house had been smoldering for hours. They barely even looked around or asked any of the witnesses questions or even the Sauter family questions before deciding that, you know, the fire had been caused by faulty wiring. Like, how can you tell that by just, like, glancing over a scene? It was pretty quickly determined that the Sauter children had not survived, even though they hadn't even looked for remains yet. The firefighters claimed that the house fire had just gotten too hot and that the bones had been incinerated by the heat. George and Jenny Sauter had a very very hard time believing this. They were not satisfied with the half-assed investigation these stupid firefighters were doing, so they took it upon themselves to do some research. And I gotta just pause right here because the Sauter parents are incredible. Like, Liam Neeson probably studied the Sauter's particular case in order to prepare for his role in Taken because the Sauter parents stop at nothing. They never quit. They never quit searching. They never quit researching into this house fire and looking into their missing children. They did the work, people. Bless them. First, Jenny Sauter, the mom, sought out the help of a fire expert from a neighboring town. And I got you, girl. Smart to not go to your own towns because... Your town and the people that run it are clearly incompetent. Um, When she talked to this fire expert, she found out that when the cause of the fire is faulty wiring, you will not have power as you escape your burning home. Like, the lights will be out. But Jenny and her husband and children distinctly remember that as they fled their home, the lights were on. And not only that, as they watched their family home burn down, and potentially their other siblings and children die, the lights were still on in the home. So that's impossible. That would be faulty wiring. Jenny also talked to employees from a nearby crematorium who informed her that in order for a human skull to incinerate in a fire, it has to reach a temperature of 2,000 degrees for at least two hours and sometimes even more than that. And this really blew the Sauter parents' minds because their house had only been on fire for 45 minutes from beginning to end. Jenny and George also sought out a different fire specialist who came to look at the wiring. And this investigator, after looking through the debris, very quickly said, quote, These wires that your fire department claims were burned were actually cut. It's so obvious that anyone working in this field should know that, end quote. This led the Sodders to question everything. Were the firefighters covering something up? Were the firefighters involved? Were the people in their town who had vowed to protect them to blame for the deaths of their children? But also, were their children even dead? 
After raising hell and causing a scene at the fire department with all of this evidence they had discovered on their own, wouldn't you know, several bones were found at the solder scene. Had the firefighters just been lazy? Nope. Had they planted these bones in the debris to get the solders off of their back? You bet your butt in gold they did. And it was like glaringly obvious. The solders hired their own coroner, uh, Smart, who quickly determined that these skeletal remains were not those of the solders' children. They didn't match the ages of the solders' children. And to take it one step further, these bones had never even been in a fire. These firefighters were sketch. And I'm disappointed because, all right, I know that a lot of people right now are having like issues with the police, but I feel like firefighters, everybody loves firefighters, right? Like everybody loves firefighters. They're usually like really cool. So like, I don't know what's going on with these bunch, with this bunch. They suck. Anyways, why? Why would the firefighters do this or cover up for someone else who did it? Like I said earlier, this made the Sodders question everything, and soon they doubted very much that their children were even dead, because as time passed, Jenny began to recall some things. She said she remembered waking up at 12.30 that morning because someone had called her home. When she got out of bed and answered, no one said hello. She went back to bed, and when shortly after, she heard a loud thud coming from the ceiling. She said she was so tired that she just opened her eyes and kind of waited around to see if she would hear another noise before she fell back to sleep. And we've all been there. There have been times when I've been so tired and I've thought like I heard something and I'm like, oh my gosh, is somebody breaking into my house? But I'm just like so tired that I think to myself, eh, if someone's in my house, I'm already dead. So I'll just go back to sleep for a little bit. Or you wake up and you wonder, like, is that sound real? Did I dream that sound? I don't know. Have you guys been there? Maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Jenny and George Sauter both began to believe that the fire was started as a diversion to kidnap their children and not a result of faulty wiring at all. Now, there are a few theories as to what happened to the five solder children, obviously, but before we get into those, let me tell you a little bit about George Sauter, the dad, to give you a bit of context as to why someone might have had an axe to grind with him and possibly could have taken it out on his family. All right, George was super cool. He was a devout and involved parent and a devout family man, but he was not perfect. Who is? He ruffled some feathers sometimes. So George had immigrated from Sardinia, Italy to Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny had selected Fayetteville because it had a small but incredibly involved Italian community. Here they felt that they would feel at home and they would be able to raise their nine children in a place with strong Italian influences and tradition. George was very vocal in his community, particularly about his disdain of Mussolini, who was the current Italian prime minister slash dictator of the time. Many people in their small community adored Mussolini, and they were very upset with George's comments. He actually got into several heated debates with several prominent members of the community. George also never revealed to anyone, not even Jenny, why he had abruptly departed from Italy, leading many in the town to speculate that he was involved in some shady business there. In the fall, before the house fire, 
a life insurance salesman had come to the Sauter home attempting to sell them insurance. When the salesman saw that his sale was not going to be successful, he became infuriated and yelled, and this is like going back to the quote at the beginning, your house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You will pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Uh, what? Case closed. All right. Bye, guys. See ya. Just, you know, push the end button now. He literally threatened to do everything to the Sauter family that actually happened to them. I think we just solved a case, guys. In the days leading up to the fire, two of the older Sauter children noticed a man that they didn't recognize watching their younger siblings play in the front yard. It creeped these older siblings out so much that they went outside and gathered their young siblings and brought them into the house. After the fire, the Sauter family would frequently return to the home as the house had become a memorial of sorts for them. They would go there to kind of visit with their children. Kind of like they didn't have remains to bury. So that was kind of like them visiting the tombstone and just kind of talking to them and telling them about what's going on and pray and stuff. So one day they went and their two-year-old daughter, Sylvia, uh, had found a rubbery object on the ground and she was kind of playing around with it. Um, Upon further inspection, George surmised that what she was playing with was actually a used pineapple napalm bomb. Is this what had been used to start the fire? It's also interesting to note that after the fire, there were several witnesses of sightings of the Sauter children coming from very close to where they lived. So one even occurring the very night of the house fire. A woman claimed to see the children in a car driving away from Fayetteville. 50 miles away from Fayetteville, a woman who operated a visiting center claims she saw the five missing children the morning after the fire, saying, quote, I served them breakfast. They were standing near a car with a Florida license plate, end quote. At a hotel in nearby Charleston, a woman reported seeing four of the children about a week later. She said, quote, the kids were with two men and two women, all of Italian descent. I do not remember the exact date. I do remember that I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the adults with them would not allow them to speak to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I continued to do nothing more, end quote. And this makes me so sad. I mean, she just knew in her gut that something was not right, but she probably like got uncomfortable or scared or felt like, I'm probably just like making, like overthinking things. And so she stopped and we're, we never know. We never know for sure if it was them or not. And also, how come there were only four children now? Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. Two years after the fire, the Sauter parents reached out to the FBI for help. At first, the FBI agreed. However, shortly after, the Fayetteville police denied the FBI's help, which, hello, that makes me feel like they had something to hide. It could also be pride. Um, I like if you've ever watched Criminal Minds, like there's always like this internal conflict between like the FBI and the people of the town. Like, oh, I, we don't need your help. Um, but I think mostly it was mostly because they didn't want to be put on blast for the nation to see either because one, they were involved or two, they didn't want to be outed for doing such a shitty job at the beginning of the investigation. 
After being denied help from the FBI, they hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, which is a really good name for a private investigator, if I do say so myself. Whoever named this dude, they had this occupation in mind for him, C.C. Tinsley. Uh, C.C. Tinsley proved to be very useful, obviously, since he must live up to his incredible name. Um, He found out that a member of the coroner's jury, which is a group of individuals who kind of sifts through the evidence of the case to see like, hey, is this a cut and dry accidental fire or is there something more suspect that needs to be investigated further? And wouldn't you know that a juror on this coroner's jury was none other than that shady as hell life insurance salesman? (laughs) Plot twist. Like, this is the guy that threatened that their house was going to go up in smoke and that their children were going to be destroyed. So, where is this shady little weasel? All I know is that he was never even interviewed. I don't know if he wasn't interviewed because they were just like, oh, that's just Sam and he's crazy. Like, don't worry about him. Or if it was because they were like, uh, we don't know where Sam is because weird. He like disappeared right after that fire. Like, I don't know. This town sucks. (laughs) After speaking to the town's minister, Cece Tinsley discovered that the stupid fire chief had been bragging about how he had found a human heart in the remains of the fire. He said he placed the human heart in a box and buried it at the site of the fire, which is really interesting to me because he is claiming that this fire was so hot that it incinerated a skull, but not hot enough that it would like deteriorate like muscle of a heart. I don't know. Uh, this guy's stupid. Anyway, so C.C. Tinsley, because he's a freaking badass, he finally got the chief to agree to show him where this supposed heart was buried. But when he opened up the box, it wasn't even a human heart, people. It was a piece of beef liver. What the freaking hell? Uh... The fire chief claimed that he did it as a gesture to put the Sodders' minds at ease, but I think it was actually an attempt to get the Sodders off of his back because he's simply just a a butthole. Um, After this, West Virginia Governor Oki L. Patterson held a hearing at the state capitol where he declared that the Sodder case would be officially closed now, which, I mean, kind of sucks because it closes some resources for the Sodders now that it's officially closed. So, like, it's much more difficult to hire a private investigator when the case has been, like, officially closed by someone of that magnitude. It's still possible, but it's just a little bit more difficult because once a case has been closed that kind of like makes this finality to it. And so then like when you're trying to hire a private investigator, they're like, is this really like a suspect case or is this just like two parents grieving who like just can't let it go? Do you know what I mean? Um, and after uh, the governor declared this case officially closed, he made a public, um, not like a chastisement, but he basically just made like a public announcement that the Sodder parents' search was hopeless, which I feel like is a really D-bag thing to do. Um, After this devastating blow, the Sodder parents still would not give up. Instead, they put up a billboard and it has stood there for 40 years. And I'm going to read this billboard to you. It says, after 30 years, it is not too late to investigate. 
On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, were kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of the law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all of these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept these lies? As with these old unsolved cases, the community has many theories as to what really happened and really is in quotes, people. Um, many believe that George Sauter had either been involved in the mafia back when he lived in Italy and this was someone there seeking revenge or he had simply angered the mafia in America by speaking out against Mussolini. Many believe the children were kidnapped and sold to an orphanage, or I guess now we would like to say trafficking, or brought back to Italy to pay off their father's debts as punishment for his disloyalty and abandonment. There were many tips from people all over the country in the decades after the fire, and devout and loyal father George Sauter investigated every single last one of these leads. He knew that, like, nobody else was going to do it for him, so he did it. No matter how silly, stupid, ridiculous, or nonsensical the lead, George investigated it personally. Sadly, each of the leads that he, um, that got to him... Um, came up empty. Again, this is why I love the Sodders. You could not hold them down or hold them back. I'd like to think, matter of fact, I believe that this is how I would personally behave if someone, if, like something happened to my kids. Like people could tell me it's hopeless, but I like wouldn't care. I would never stop trying to get a resolve. I would never stop trying to get answers and trying to get justice. I think that we all would agree if someone we loved went missing or we were a little bit suspicious of whether or not they died, we would never stop. In 1963, a letter addressed to Jenny arrived at the Sauter home. In this letter was a photograph of a young man who looked kind of like their son, Louis, who had been nine at the time of his disappearance. There was no return address on the letter, but the letter was postmarked from Kentucky. On the back of the photograph was a handwritten note that read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132 or 35. With this new lead, the Sauters hired a new private investigator to go investigate. Strangely, this investigator went to Kentucky and was never heard from again. And that's crazy to me because, like, a lot of people insinuate, like, oh, he must have taken the money and run. But, like, why would this private investigator risk his entire career for, like, I don't know how much money they would have paid him, but, like, they certainly wouldn't have given him, like, a, like $2 million. Like, you can't live off that. Like, they probably gave him, like, like two grand, five grand, 10 grand. Like you can't live off that. Why would you risk your entire reputation for 10 grand? Like this just seems ridiculous. Um, so I feel like it would appear that the private investigator might've been onto something and something, uh, not good happened to him. 
George Sauter died shortly after this in 1969 at the age of 74. Jenny Sauter died later in 1984. Sylvia, the youngest Sauter child to survive, um, she was two at the time of the fire. She's currently the only Sauter child still living today, and even she hasn't stopped the fight for answers or for truth. She continues to carry the torch of justice and the potential deaths or kidnappings of her siblings. And these are like siblings that she probably doesn't even remember because I don't, I don't know. I don't think you would remember your siblings if they died when they were, when you're two, like maybe you would remember stories or pictures, but I just think that's awesome that she's still so invested when she probably has very limited memory of them, if any memory at all. Um, she does have help though. Her daughter and son run a website where you can post tips or potential leads called websleuths.com. Um, her daughter says, quote, my mom, Sylvia promised my grandmother, Jenny, that she would never let the story die. And that's what my brother and I are doing today. And it is what we will continue to do until our dying breaths. After all these years, the question still remains, what happened to Betty Jenny, Lewis, Maurice, and Martha Sauter. Were they really the victims of a tragic house fire? Or did they fall victim to something far more sinister? What do you think? Do any of these theories hold any water for you? In my personal opinion, and this is just me on my little Rochelle box over here, so don't come for me, all right? I think George pissed off the wrong person who concocted or got together with a bunch of people um, and created like this elaborate scheme to get back at him. And I think it was a community involved crime. So I feel like a lot of people know or knew the truth, but were too afraid to come forward for fear of retaliation from some like pretty prominent people in the community. Um, I think that the house was set on fire with that bomb and the person was like, hey, I could kill all of these kids or I could kidnap some of them and make some money off of this, which is what I think that they did. Um, I do not for the life of me understand the letter with the photo. I don't know if it's just like some jerk that, I mean, we've, we've heard about this in a lot of cases that we do. Like there's a lot of false confessions, a lot of false tips that I think is just really, really rude of them to like just prolong the suffering of these poor people, the Sodders. Um, I've seen the picture and I will post the picture. And I mean, I feel like they look similar and that the picture of the older guy in his twenties looks Italian. Um, I grew up in a very Italian prominent, um, influential town. It's called Syracuse. Hello, like Syracuse, Italy. Like, that's what it was named after. Um, and he looks very Italian. He looks like half the guys that went to my school. Um, but does he look specifically like Lewis? I don't know. Lewis looks Italian and this dude in the picture looks Italian. But I don't I don't know if that necessarily means that they're the same person. Um, but what makes no sense to me at all is the cryptic numbers on the back of it. It just seems really bizarre to me. I want to know like what those numbers mean, if they mean anything at all, or if it was just like some fake red herring that somebody concocted to be a douche. I have no idea. Um, I think that one of the Sauter children, one of the five, 
um, they either died shortly after they were kidnapped or they were sold. They never, the person that makes that, um, report never states which one, like they never say which one was missing. So I don't know if it was the older one or the middle, the youngest one or some, somebody in the middle. And I can come up with ideas for both. I mean, if they, I think that like the oldest that was kidnapped was 14 and it was a boy. And I mean, they might've just killed him or got rid of him right away because they were like, he's fighting with us. We don't want to deal with this crap. Or they could have like, um, sold the younger one. Um, because either like she's a baby and she won't stop crying or she's the easiest one to sell on the black market because she's the youngest and the cutest. Like I, I literally have no idea. I'm just like speculating here. Um, it really is just so b bizarre, but I still cannot get over how much the Sauter family never gave up on their family members. I mean, after being told they were hopeless, being like slapped in the face by people who are supposed to serve and protect them, they didn't let that break their spirits. Their perseverance is astonishing. And even now there are two individuals, two, like a niece and a nephew who didn't even know their aunts and uncles, but they are still very much connected and very much dedicated to this cause. I am one personally who does believe in an afterlife, um, and I can only imagine how sweet that reunion must have been when the Sauter parents passed away. Um, I truly believe from the bottom of my heart that the Sauter parents in death now know the truth about what happened to their children. Um, and at this point, it probably doesn't even matter. They're probably just like so stoked to see each other. But I feel like if I had spent my life's mission trying to find out what happened to them, I feel like there would be some peace in knowing what happened to them. Um, so let me know what you think on our Instagram at mystery still unsolved. I would love to hear your thoughts, theories, and opinions. It seriously makes my day. Also, if you just want to like hit me up in my DMS and be like, Hey girl, you're so great. I love listening to your stuff. That would make my day too. <laughs> um, again, thank you so much, Danielle, for this wonderful suggestion. It is a case I've been wanting to cover for a long time. And you sending in that listener suggestion just kind of like pushed me forward. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, if you want to know how you can further support this podcast, you can, of course, follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. You can visit my website at www.mysterystillunsolved. Shameless plug! Uh, you can share my podcast with your true crime-loving friends and family members. I'm almost at 100, guys. I'm almost at 100 followers. We are going to get there. We're going to get there. Slow and steady wins the race, right? Um, but do you want to know the best way to support this podcast? Uh, of course you do. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved.